Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Good evening and welcome to the History of Germany podcast. My name is Travis Dow. And this episode has been on the list for a while. It's also a popular request, namely Slavic peoples living within the German Empire. And, you know, they still do. We've talked about Germans and Celts, Germans and Romans, and to their east starts the endless sea of Slavic languages and peoples. In the chronological episodes, like in the miniseries of the Franks and Saxons, we've mentioned these Slavs, these people that keep getting conquered and forced baptized. So this episode is about them, like I promised. From Charlemagne to Otto the Great to the Salians, have Slavs being converted by German missionaries to conquest and even colonization. And this episode is about the Slavic peoples mostly living within Germany, going back a millennium or so, to about the timeline where I, I am in the chronological episodes. And this episode is also about the Slavic history within the Holy Roman Empire and Germany, especially, or one of the Slavic groups are the Vens, or Wens, or the Venden in German. It's not a very accurate term for anyone, really. Better would be Sorbs, maybe that's also familiar, around Lusatia, Lausitz, which is, uh, today that kind of straddles the German-Polish border, it's close to the Czech Republic. Now the problem with, with Wends is there are one problem, there's many problems, but there's also Windish speakers in Slovenia, but actually the etymology is much messier than that, so there's, there's a lot of problems here when referring to people called Wends. Going way back to Roman times, we have peoples being called Venetia, Venice, Venete in the Roman Empire, which was um, Celtic Veneters lived in the time of Caesar in Gaul. And then there's Venetians um, in the East Alps, kind of north of the Adriatic Sea. And then there's a third Venetia, which is just kind of known from hearsay during the time of Pliny or Tacitus or Ptolemy. And then in the early Middle Ages, so these were kind of further away and they were up, up near the Baltic. And then when specifically talking about Slavic people, they kind of, um, there was, it was more referred to as the Solones or Stavani that reached all the way into, you know, into the area of the Alanin. So yeah, so the, in the Roman times, we don't really get our Slavic Vens. Okay, so who are the Wends? Uh, we still don't have an answer. The Germans, now started to use this term, Wens, for random peoples who spoke Romance languages. So what do those people on the other side of the Rhine speak? Dunno, can't understand them. Some Welch, okay? And the guys south of the Alps? I, I, heck if I know, just they're just Welching. And that's kind of at least how I imagine it. And more to my point, more concretely, those guys in Romania, uh, the area known as Wallachia, 
it's still known as Wallachia, uh, like where Vlad the Impaler ruled, as in uh, the you know the guy that's in inspired Dracula. Yeah, that so it just means like Valonian or Valachai, like Wallachia in Romania. It just kind of means foreign, like the foreign things, the people that speak a different language. Um, a Valach, yeah, so like there's Romanian peoples um, were mentioned, you know, in the late 18th century from the German Wallach, Valache, uh, which, yeah, also has ties to the Erd, old church Slavonic Vlachu. Or from the old high, yeah. So like like Val, um, but really like Vlach, really just someone that's that speaks a foreign language. It's kind of like someone that speaks gibberish. Is um, he's yeah he's Velching, he, Velch. He's speaking Velch, and it could be like related is a really old Germanic word Valha, which could describe Celts. Same thing. I mean, and then this was later Rom- Romanized. Um, and kind of referred to all the Romance-speaking peoples. I mean, it just kind of spread from there, but it's a very old term is what I'm trying to get across. In fact, that exists in English more directly, like in as in Wales or Cornwall or Wallonia, yeah, but uh, in Southeast Europe, there's all kinds of um, things that refer to Romanians like Vlach and Blach and uh, Bloch and, or Boloch. And it's all just kind of like it's, yeah, they're all just, we don't know. Um, there's a part of Switzerland that no one can understand called the Welsh uh, Schweiz. It's the Welsh <laughs> the speaking Swiss. And then, you know, the Anglo-Saxons, who were also speaking Germanic languages, they came across the original Britons, and they didn't understand what they were saying, so that's where we get the term Wales, in fact. The Welsh themselves didn't call themselves that. They're like Cambrians. This is a Germanic ta- term for the people that speak gibberish. And you see that not just when we're turn- re- referring to Wales on the British Isles, but in um, areas in Gaul, and then, like I already mentioned, Romania, but just all kinds of place names like Valland and Vala and, you know, something related to, to, it all comes back to like Welsh, that kind of thing. Um, same with Cornwall in or southwestern England. And even such things like Walloon or even the Walnut is just a, you know, a nut from a foreign place. And surnames Walsh and Wallace, for instance. Um, yeah, anyway, so that's just, yeah, that's that's all that means. It was just place names that mean gibberish. And in German to this day, there's an old term dating back from the 16th century, at least, that just says, that just, it's, the term is Kaudawelsch, which is just a mix of foreign languages or even just gibberish. Like, I don't know what he's speaking. It's Kaudawelsch. Now, don't worry, the Czechs, which is Slavic, um, their name for Germans is Niemetsky, meaning the same thing. It is those who cannot speak. So it's mutual. Okay, but now the Welsh, Cornwall, all that, those were referring to Britons, to like British Isle Celts. So we're still not quite, we're, you know, still not on the right track there because we're looking for Slavs that are called um, Vens or Wens, uh, Venden. Now to narrow it down a little further, in the upper German area, speak like Bavarian and Austrian area, uh, the term Vindish was used to note people that were speaking Slavic, like their Slavic-speaking uh, neighbors, both north and south of the Alps. So Bavarians and Austrians started to look east and, you know, north and south of themselves. And those Slavic-speaking people amongst themselves, they said they speak Vindish, okay? And now, like this Vindish... Uh, with an E, Vendish, like Venden, are now just the Elp uh, Slavs, and Vindish with an I 
is this one language in Slovenia. It's a Slovenic uh, language, or rather the, the Slovenic language. In Slovenia, according to Austrians and Germans, they speak Vindish. So the, the Bajuvaren, the old uh, Celtic or the old Bavarians called this, this southern Slavic tribe the Vindish, okay? And this is kind of at the same time when there's a Latinizing of Veneti and Vineti and Veneti, these different uh, Latin terms for a very similar kind of, um, you know, some tribe that lived around there. Like Venice, for instance, also comes from that Latin uh, version. So different, but potentially, you know, talking about peoples in the East. Um, anyways, yeah, so that, that's, I don't want to throw in more confusion there because it's, it's different. But narrowing it down even further to Arvens in Germany, so near the where the Czech Republic, Poland, and Germany meet, there's an area called Lausitz, and this this is more the so now I basically so far I've just defined who we're not talking about, and our German Slavs. Um, so in Nether Lausitz, we had like it's kind of near it's in Brandenburg in the state of Brandenburg. So east eastern Germany, and yeah, so we have uh, Venden and Zorben, like the Sorbs. These are our Slavs living in Germany, and especially in eastern German, like in GDR times, uh, Sorbs would just be everybody, like Nether and like Lower and Upper uh, Lausitz. But really, so the Sorbs are in Upper Lausitz. Maybe the Vens are in Nether, Lower uh, Lausitz. So there's a difference there in the two um, types of Slavs, which, you know, probably goes back a millennium. I mean, this is the time. That, the reason I bring this episode up now is these are the peoples that the Ottonians and Salians were conquering um, and converting to Christianity and that kind of thing. So these Sorbs and uh, people that they called Vens. Okay, now Sorbs also, there's... <laughs> Uh, it's worth mentioning something here because you might notice that that sounds very similar to Serb with an E, and I don't want to throw in confusion here. So Serbs are a, is a Balkan uh, people. So Serbia is in the Balkan states like Yugoslavia. Yugoslavia means South Slavic. So Southern, you know, Southeastern Europe by Greece there. Macedonia is one of those states. So way down there is where the Serbs are. Sorbs is much further north in Europe. But again, Serbs and Sorbs are both Slavic peoples. So there's clearly something to this. So what does Serb mean? Just to, to clarify, so this Yugoslav uh, peoples. In 1813, we have a reference to the Vens, okay? Like 1861, as native of Serbia. Whoa, what? So the Vens are native of Serbia. That's weird. And this is, so there's a Serbian term called Serb, S-R-B, um, who's also one of my former landlord's last names. But anyways, you shouldn't know that. Um, that just might mean man, like old Slavic, it just means man. So just the people, you know, that goes back to just the, the folk, the, the, the peoples. So Serbian is attested to 1848 as a noun and 1876 as an adjective. So those Serbians, okay, as a people. And yeah, but in more common in the 19th century was Servian with a V. And now Sorb, we have, uh, it goes at least back to 1843 from the German Sorbe. And then there's also, you know, from the Slavic Ser Serb. But in this case, really re referring to people from Lusatia, uh, Eastern Saxony and Brandenburg, that, that area. 
Okay, so now we know we are talking about Slavs living within what is today the eastern part of Germany that have been there for a thousand plus years. Okay, just to recap, because yeah, we're already 15 minutes into it and we're just now defining who we're actually talking about. We went from Romans, descriptions of people called Venetiae, Venetiae, whatever, uh, to Germans calling Romanized Celts Welsh and Wallach, to finally setting on just the close Slavs being called that. So we get the Slavic Vens in the Holy Roman Empire to differentiate between Celtic, Welsh, and Cornwall, and the Romance-speaking Wallachia in today's Romania. Okay, so let's now find out more about the Slavic ones living in the empire, the Vens and Sorbs. Who were they now? And this is to shed light on peoples we mentioned in passing in the Frankish and Saxon miniseries. Okay, so finally, here we go. How did these peoples live? What did that look like before the Charlemagnes and Heinrichs and Otto started conquering? Okay, um, through archaeology, we see kind of parapets, like mounds for walls, and as well as um, open settlements. And this oldest archaeological culture is what's known as the Prager culture from the 7th century. Um, so just a very old Slavic, which is just is called that because it was first discovered around Prague. Uh, but yeah, it's it goes beyond that, that area. Um, but that goes way back. So there were Slavs living in that area way back when, and then they were... Uh, later, there was the Feltberg uh, culture, the Feltberger ceramic culture, um, Menkendorfer ceramic, uh, the Leipzig group. So there's other Slavic groups, um, kind of, you know, wave after wave of immigration, or they just kind of changed their cultures over times. Very similar to the way we saw, we saw with Celts. Like, if you recall, I did a mini-series on the Celts and talked about Hallstatt being one archaeological level um, where there's, you know, there's several different different levels over over, over a, a vast long time period, uh, the cultures kind of change. So what we had there with Celts, here we have with Slavs. So the oldest one was Prager and then, you know, a younger one was Leipziger group. But yeah, what we see is, you know, they've no longer, they're not hunter-gatherers or they're not nomadic. They're, they're also farmers, settled agricultural peoples just like their German neighbors growing wheat and rye and raising uh, cattle and pigs and sheep and chickens um, yeah the the basic the basic necessities that the Germans next to them had to the the old the oldest ceramic was you know hand formed but you know without without a potting wheel and that kind of thing um, pretty plain we do see iron working and we also see, you know, working of uh, wood and stone and bone and leathers and, uh, you know, everything else you'd expect. And generally pretty open. So not, you know, not a lot of, like, heavily fortified city walls and everything. Usually near rivers or even right on, on lakes kind of thing. In the range of 8 to 20 houses, like, which I guess you can assume are households. The, the houses are often pretty small basically square rather than, you know, long rectangular houses and often kind of lowered into the dirt. This is, yeah, you see other cultures do this too. And it's just, it's kind of helps with insulation and that kind of thing. Yeah. You know, you're kind of, yeah, it's just a lowered, lowered house. So you're kind of in the cellar. 
Now later, and this is kind of interesting because uh, especially in my German version, people might know this if you live in certain parts of Germany. Um, so I, I will kind of have to clarify this in the German version more, I, I expect. But these um, Rundlingdorf, these round, it's actually kind of a horseshoe shaped, like a semicircle in a way, but, you know, horseshoe shaped villages where in the middle you just have this this uh you know open area just a, a lawn or whatever just a, just an open area where you could have your your festivals or whatever and then open to one side so i guess it's easy easy to ride in and out i have no idea um, and then all the houses are in this semicircle or you know kind of a even a horseshoe just open on one end laid out and then it's all farmhouses and then behind you on is was where your your slice of farmland would be and then each village would be walking distance away from the next village even just you know, a couple couple like 10 kilometers or whatever so just one one a half day to a day or so away so pretty tightly packed actually and you know just very efficient way of doing agriculture uh, now the thing is, is that these villages were not found to be super ancient, of like the ones I was, you know, like not the Prager culture or the the Leipzig group. Um, if you look up Rundling, this is yeah. So you see, it's like it's described as farms like spokes in a wheel uh, with a, around a common green, and you can still see these in Germany. And and some some places evolved out of these, especially if the place name. You know, it has a Slavic ending like it's or off. Like that's a that's just a, those are Slavic place names endings. Um, in today's Wendland, especially in Germany, that was yeah that that was I would say that's more from the medieval period, not from the ancient prehistoric Slavic days, and was much more of a way to um, colonize and just you know effectively settle this area within already German Holy Roman Empire times. So whether it was Germans uh, living like this or um, just because of the place names you would think would be Slavs, it was still, it was within the Holy Roman Empire. So you don't see these, these Rundling uh, villages, Rundlingdorf just means Rundling, Rundling village. Um, you don't see them further east. Like you don't really see them in the Czech Republic even, as far as I know. I don't know. That's really strange. You don't see them in Poland. You don't see them, which Poland even had, you know, Germanic influences here and there. Um, you don't see them further east. So, yeah, it's just, it's strange. But, uh, yeah, you do see this. And, and I would say it's, it's, there was this colonization from within the empire to colonize, you know, eastern parts of the empire. And that, that happened in the Middle Ages, really. And that's where these come from. But anyways, if you're around Wendland, there, there's still some villages that still have this. These were described uh, in the Middle Ages by Bavarian and, and others. Yes, anyways, those is kind of a neat little village layout that's typical of the of that area. And now to give some background of the history of those peoples. Um, in the 11th and 12th century, we have the Elp, the Elp Slavs that were, so originally they were all non, they were pagan, non-Christian, non-Christian. And so they had their own Slavic pagan beliefs. And especially we have these important sites like just just known from like not even known archaeology or archaeologically sometimes just known from historic records of these sort of temple castles or temple bergs like Cap Arcona in Rügen or Retra Retra I'll bring it up again in a minute that's like super important um, where they 
worshipped their gods like Radagast or Triglav, who I'm gonna I'm gonna circle back to. And we see in the 10th century the first uh, bishoprics being founded. Okay, so this is the now we're we're gonna start seeing some conflict between the German missionaries going east and the pagans like resisting, and then the Germans coming with swords and that kind of thing. But uh, to give you guys a glimpse of what the Germans ran into, because I did not do that when I when I um, discussed this from the Saxon point of view, really, um, are you know who these pagan Slavs were, and the most important of their gods was Svarotsich or Radegost, the knowledge-seeking god, um, the one who could foretell the future. The Slavs themselves had a practice of trying to divine through oracles, and even had sacrifices for this purpose. Um, They would throw lots to divine, and often this was, so these would be like, kind of like Celtic Druids, I I imagine. Um, But these high priests, these people that really made the future by foretelling it, because um, if if they predicted a bad omen or predicted a bad outcome, then the leaders, the the tribal leaders would listen. So these priests had real power. Uh, like real political power. So so when they threw lots, like that really meant something. Um, they also uh, throw lots and then cover it with green grass and then kind of stick it with two lance uh, spear tips. And then you take a, a holy, then you take a holy horse and lead it across, lead it over this whole mess. The attitude, the behavior of the horse would that that would be the divining. Like you would read that and that's, you know, that would be a bad omen or a good omen. Um, and horses, it's interesting that they did it with horses because the Celts were really into horses too. So, um, but yeah, anyways, so the, the Slavs used horses for divination as well, but sacrificial rituals were also, um, recorded, um, trying to like calm the gods down basically who demanded blood of humans and people apparently, especially, uh, the heads of enemies. So human victims would often be the the enemies in war. And this, these, so this is as late as like the early kind of 11th century. We still get, you know, reports from Germans being written of of these kind of acts. John of Mecklenburg, who was a bishop, um, had his head put on a spike by these pagans as a sign sign of rebellion. So there's definitely religious conflict between the Christian Saxons and Franks and you know, Germans, the Christian Germans, and now the Slavic um, pagans. And I described just a couple episodes ago the pagan Saxons being uh, hounded by the Catholic Franks. And before that, it was, you know, even a pagan Franks. So this is just kind of, you know, history does repeat itself, at least in this regard, that, you know, as you're moving east, you're conquering these pagan peoples and Christianizing them. Um, so yeah, there's there's some parallels here, a little bit of deja vu. And the, the German contact with them went at least back to around the year 600. So the 7th century, um, along the Elbe and the Sala, you start to have Germanic peoples and Slavic peoples, um, you know, realizing that, hey, those other guys across the Elbe or across the Sala, they don't, I can't understand them. They speak funny. The, either they're Nemetsky, like those who can't speak, or they're Velching around, like speaking gibberish. So starting near the Czech border in Bavaria today, we're going north into Saxony today, like into Germany today, there was Slavs there. Um, basically, yeah, end of the 7th century, you know, 8th century, 
that they were just kind of following the the Baltic and heading further west, um, all the way of you know if you think of former East Germany, they filled that gap where centuries before the Great Migration, they vacated it from the Huns and all that, and you know Slavs came on in. So yeah, if you think of Eastern former Eastern Germany, they were they were uh, they had a Slavic influence at least, even if there were some Germanic speakers there. Um, yeah, there was also some Slavs moving in, moving into the area. We have uh, the Abodrites specifically in the Western Baltic, and that's I mentioned that because there's still the Abodrites. You know, they're still in Mecklenburg, Vorpommern. Um, they're still there. I think there's still Slavic, like ethnically Slavic people in that part of Germany. So they were, um, yeah, the Obo Obodrites. Uh, the Polabs, part of that group. There's many subgroups. I have a whole huge list of them. Um, and I, I kind of feel like some of them are still alive today, so I feel like it's like they'll get insulted if I don't mention them, maybe, uh, at least in German. But but yeah, there's, I mean, the bits, b- besides the huge groups like Abodrites and Sorbs, um, there's all kinds of smaller subgroups too, like a couple dozen. But, okay, anyways, so in the 10th century, so now we have... The Saxon miniseries, if you recall, and I promise I'll get back to uh, this then, we have Heinrich I, Otto I, conquering big swaths, 983, Otto II was busy in Italy, and he died like a loser, besieging Venice, leaving his four-year-old son, when, bam, we have the great Slavic uprising. That's, yeah, that's what I mentioned that, and I mentioned that, okay, I'll come back to that. So here it is. Because anyways, this story is much more interesting from the Slavic point of view. Remember Radagast from The Lord of the Rings? The weird hermit wizard who lives in the woods and had bird poop in his hair? Well, Radagast is actually the name of a Slavic pagan god. Not in fantasy, but in real life. Tolkien got it from this. It's also the name of a Slavic holy place, more commonly known as Rethra. Retra, I guess, because they don't have a th. Retra these days. Um, but more importantly, it's also the name of a Czech beer. Unfortunately, that's a different story. What's interesting is, or unfortunately, I should say, this this holy place, this pagan uh, Slavic holy place, is lost today. It's lost because even contemporary chroniclers had a bit of trouble getting the name right and the god that was worshipped there. It was the religious and political center of the Leutitsen, in any case. And so from here, they now plotted to get rid of their German-slash-Christian overlords and go back to their pagan ways. Leutitsen was an alliance of some four Slavic tribes, all centered around that holy site, Retra. The priests of Retra were kind of in charge. So the to to uh, quote two sources here, um, Tietmar von Merseburg says uh, my translation is in the Redarirg. There's a triangular and three-doored fortress, Riedegost, like Radegast, surrounded by a huge for the inhabitants, unharmable holy forest. Two of its doors are open to all. The third and the smallest, the east door or east gate, goes to a path to a nearby very dark sea. In the fortress, there's only a only a wooden relic that stands on a foundation made of the horns of different animals. And it's carved in like all kinds of pictures of uh, gods and goddesses. 
and inside it has like idols with their names carved in it. And Adam von Bremen says, between the Elbe and Oder, there are more Slavic tribes. In the middle is the strongest of them, the Ridariers. And they live, or they're in, from Retra, the center of their sacrilegious beliefs. There stands a big temple to their idols, the highest of which is Radagast. His picture is made in gold and his camp of purple. The fortress has nine gates and is surrounded by a deep lake. So this differs from the previous one that says it has three gates and the, the lake's off to one side. But anyways, and then he also speaks of uh, divination and the oracles and yeah, that kind of thing. The middle, the, the middle point of the fortress is this wooden temple. That's kind of what we're getting from Retra. And is carved on the outside, you know, has idols on the inside, um, is consecrated to Radagast. But anyways, you can see there's differences in their descriptions, and that's why it's hard to find out, you know, where the actual site is today, where where the city was, and, you know, do some archaeological digs there because it's it's lost. But um, yeah, there are there's there's other um, reports from that time there. Speaking of the holy horse. Um, and other, you know, religious uh, rituals that they did at the time. Anyways, Retra wasn't just this place of worship in a religious sense, but also milita- militaristically important. Like, it was the uh, capital in the terms of, like, when one tribe got in trouble, then here's where they all met, and then, you know, they'd all meet at Retra and then go attack out from there. Which brings me to... <laughs> Um, the Great Slavic Uprising in 983, which is now a couple episodes ago. Uh, we have the Palabian Slavs, the Vens, um, the Lutitsi, and Obotrites. These are different various tribes, and they live lived uh, east of the Elbe, and they all decide to revolt. This is you know because Otto II had just died, and you know Otto III is like four years old, and so you know why not? It's a good time. They all, so yeah, so anyways, they you know, put a bishop's head on a spike and marched off to a city. The They started from, from Retra, and the bishop's seat of Havelberg is where they ended up on the 29th of June, 983. They occupied and plundered it, and then they marched off to Brandenburg, kind of hitting up the settlements along the, Tan, the uh, Tanger River. More Slavs joined along the way, according to Tietmar of uh, Merseburg, and they even did a failed assault on Hamburg. And finally now the Saxons, you know, just kind of assembled an army and went off to, to stop all this. But the but were not able. In the end, um, yeah, the the some of the Slavs threw off their, their, you know, kind of went back to their pagan ways and set that part back, you know, for about a century or so, or at least set Christianity back for about a century and, um, you know, weren't, weren't, conquered and occupied again for for another 100 years. In 1003, Henry II tried a different approach. He allied himself with the Lutizzi um, and waged war, so kind of divide and conquer, because uh, he needed him for against his war of Boleslav. And Boleslav, remember, I think Henry II was the one that had like 14 years of war against... Yeah, it was, because the Autos um, were always allied with Boleslav, but Henry didn't have that alliance. So he had like 14 years. So he used the Lutitsi, these Slavs living even closer, and fought the Poles with them as allies. This, however, 
legitimized the, the Lotizi, m- meaning they they weren't, you know, they were not, they were more autonomous and independent because they were helping Henry. So they were, you know, they had more autonomy, basically, is what that meant. And uh, so they stayed unchristianized until the 12th century. Only in future episodes do, so like basically for 200 years, we do not have an actual bishop in Havelberg, for instance. That That's like one symptom of of um, how how this was re-paganized and it stopped Christianity in its tracks for a couple hundred years. Um, in that time, Poland, uh, Bohemia, even even Hungary were all becoming Christianized and had Christian rulers. But here, these Vens Sorbs, um, the Lutici, did not. They were they remained pagan, and the the. The bishopric of Havelberg uh, didn't exist for 200 years, basically. It just, you know, the bishopric did in name only, but there was no bishop. Like, it was, yeah, I mean, they were all pagans. So it was kind of interesting. And then um, only in the 12th century did it, which we're not there yet chronologically, um, did they start to reconquer like Henry the Lion and, and these. They started to ally themselves back with um, the the empire and re-Christianize and everything. Um, and re-Germanize then later, uh, which, hold on, I'll get to that in a second. Um, but yeah, so now that, that's where we are kind of chronologically. So um, yeah, so now I've kind of caught up. Now just to, to summarize this, this because I don't want to keep having to separate Slavs from Germans. That's, that's kind of silly. Um, now, Retra, I want to just mention that it has been sought after. Like, this, the fact that it's lost is not, like, because no one's looked for it. Uh, since the 14th century, there has been theories on where it is. Since the 16th century, like 1519, um, there's a theory that it's, since it's by Borg uh, Stargard. Um, there's little statues here and there saying that this is the place, that's the place. Um, because there's like one one idol got got dug up in the 18th century, so 1768, where the word retro was carved into it. But yeah, I mean, it was probably a forgery. There's just all kinds of. I mean, don't, I don't say it lightly that it, it's lost this this pagan holy site because it's not lost, you know, over negligence. Like people really looked for it. And there's all kinds of uh, German lo- uh, local folklore about it, and all of this. Um, yeah, so it's really interesting. There's, there's. I could go off and and talk for for another hour just on Retra and the different um, attempts of, at finding it, and and because it's hundreds of years now. Um, that that history. So that, that's really interesting. But instead. Uh, let's find out what happened to the people that we do know where they were, namely the the Wens. And in the starting in the 11th century, and but which is where we are chronologically in the other episodes, uh, but especially in the 12th and 13th century, we will start to talk about the Wendish Crusade, and then the the Crusades uh, further east, and the Teutonic Knights, and all of that. But yes, so the Wendish Crusade was a, it's called a crusade because it was Christians against pagans and you know to to try and con- go and f- convert them and this brings us to a very long tradition of oppression and slow but sure germanization and that that has to be said because um if you look for sorbs and vens they're few and far between um and they all speak german or polish or czech i guess uh here and there but but um, their languages have definitely been dying out. 
And it is, so there are West Slavic languages and dialects in the Holy Roman Empire that were just, yeah, I mean, just for, because it's it's like basically a millennium of German Germanization now that they just didn't, they just kind of didn't survive or are extremely endangered if they did survive. Um, in the 15th century, there was laws or rules against using Wendish languages. Even so, even in so 1517, 1519, some uh, somewhere in there is uh, Martin Luther's time, and even Martin Luther is is recorded of of saying, um, kind of, because he lived in the eastern part of Germany. Wittenberg is like in eastern Germany, and he and he even he is recorded uh, cursing these Wendish speakers, uh, quote unquote, uh, the the farmers in the area around Wittenberg. So, I mean, we definitely have Wendish speakers, you know, the 600 years later in the in the 16th century. They're still described um, here and then up until the 18th century, like there's still that the language exists. And, and often, so often these historians would confuse Vens with Vandals, to be honest. So like they would often confuse these uh, Slavic speakers with an East Germanic you know, Vandal, like East kind of uh, Ostrogoth speakers. Um, so, which was just historically inaccurate. You know, the the great the great migration, these the people's migration. Um, you know, they the Vandals went all the way to Northern Africa and were gone, and and this and that. So, these are Slavic peoples, not Germanic at all. But um, we do have that just just many many sources throughout the ages. Uh, throughout the centuries mentioned the Vens, and in fact, they survived until the 20th century for sure. And then there's kind of weirdnesses that happened. Um, so after World War II, 1945, a big chunk of East Prussia, Prussia was cut in half because they were very warlike and kept starting world wars and stuff. So Prussia was cut in half, and the eastern part was given to Poland. And Poland was like, great. Well, now we also have, um, so Germans were kicked out and sent west, but the Vens and Sorbs were kind of an an exception because they're saying, well, they're Slavic, so they they should stay and de-Germanize and now speak a Slavic language again. Um, but the funny thing is, is that they had been living in, I mean, they're German for a millennium. They're not it's not like they, I mean, it's just, that's just kind of ludicrous and crazy. That's really romanticizing history. And in fact, these people wanted to leave because they wanted to go to West Germany and they wanted to, you know, so they wanted to, you know, go to the Bundesrepublik Deutschland and uh, didn't even, you know, didn't want to also bypass East Germany and um, for political reasons and economic reasons and had way more to do with historic reasons or what language they spoke. Um, just, yeah, way more realistic reasons, really. Uh, so yeah, that's that's kind of interesting. So there there was this thing in communism. There was an attempt to Slav Slavicize these Sorbs and Vens, and and those people fought back and went to West Germany. Yeah. So this is so it's not black and white. We're talking about going from a communist country. I mean, yeah, that that's the thing. The, the, there's this weirdness in in the communist times. They basically failed. Um, they thought of themselves as German. So when I said earlier that there was a thousand years of oppression and Germanization, well, okay, but now they're German. Maybe they still spoke um, their 
house language, like maybe at home to their children and husband and wife, they would speak a Slavic, Vendish, Sorbish language or just some words or a mix or whatever. But as soon as they stepped out the front door, they were German, kind of like the Crimean Goths, but the other way around, the exact opposite other way around. Uh, yeah. So anyways, so yeah, there's uh, still several thousand, tens of thousand of people that still claim to speak these. So there are uh, like 20, 20 to 30,000 Sorbic speakers. In 1900, there was 150,000. So, but yeah, I mean, it still exists is, is, is the short answer. There's maybe up to 50,000 uh, Slavic, you know, German Slavic speakers that speak this thousand-year-old thousand Slavic language and just kind of hung on there because... Yeah, I mean, they were all Slavic before. So, you know, being a thousand years of Germany, finally they're, you know, it's 50,000 of them left up to. And if you are traveling around Germany, you might see place names like Vendeborg or Vende, Venden, Vende, just there's a thousand Vende, Vendevish, Vendessen, Vendehausen, whatever. Those all basically come from that. So if, you, if you're driving through Vendish Bromne or Vendish Fähre or... Wendischhagen, all any of those uh, combinations, and you're like, hey, those are from the Vens. Those are that's the thousand year old. You're probably in Eastern uh, Germany, probably, but um, yeah. So or you know, in Saxony and Brandenburg, that 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 area, um, even in Poland, um, which yeah, there's yeah, all kinds of uh, places that have Wendish or um, Sorbian in the in the name, and they're still around. So there are still speakers that, that do this. So yes, they're still there. And hence, um, some of you might be, you know, genetically uh, Slavic German. You might come from these Sorbs or Vens or Lausitz uh, folk. And that's why so many of you have been, have been asking for this, I guess, uh, which is kind of interesting that, yeah, I mean, it's so it's, it definitely still exists. Uh, so Otto the, Otto the Great and his campaigns and Henry way back when, um, yeah, there's the people he conquered are still kind of, they still self-identify as Slavic, I guess, or at least Vendish or Sorbish or something, which is interesting. I wasn't super aware of that. So yeah, that's neat. Um, when I do the German episode, I wonder how that'll turn out. So I wonder how much feedback I'll get. I'm interested to know. Let me mention really quick that the History of Germany podcast is an Agora podcast member. This month is the awesome uh, Ben Jacobs Wittenberg to Westphalia is the podcast of the month for Agora and definitely give him a listen. I did a guest episode for him once and uh, yeah, he's, um, no, he hasn't been on the show. He'll be on the show soon. I do. I do believe. Uh, I don't even know if it's this show, but yeah, Ben and I are, we got something in the works again. Um, meanwhile, yeah, uh, I, I do have a new podcast out. It's called Africa, a history. If you go to podcastnick.com, there's links. It's on iTunes, all that. So there's a new podcast out. Um, I am also part of the Dark Myths Collective. I'd like to mention the Lone Gunman. Lone Gunman's a great ep uh, podcast that I've... So now I'm slowly getting to listen to, kind of working my way through some of the Dark Myths because they're not, they're not all um, history podcasts. So I, normally I just listen to history podcasts. But because I'm a Dark Myths member, I try to listen to some of the other ones. And yeah, like I'm pleasantly surprised. The Lone Gunman is one of, uh, one of the shows that I'm, I'm enjoying lately. Uh, so I'd like to give that one a shout out. And what else? There's, yeah, the new Bohemican episodes are out. New Secret Cabinet episodes are out. 
uh, Africa content is coming out soon. The Secret Cabinet, there's a couple new ones out and, and more to come. So go find all of that on podcastnick.com. That's podcast, N-I-K.com. And remember, the best way to help out a podcast, period, is review us on iTunes. If you go review History of Germany podcast on iTunes and give me a five-star rating, that helps a lot. That gets, that gets me attention to folk that have never heard, the, heard of the show before. So uh, even if you're an Android user, um, that still helps to go rate us on iTunes because a lot of the stuff comes from iTunes. And yeah, that's, that's where it all kind of lives. Much appreciated. And otherwise, vielen Dank fürs Zuhören. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.